Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is Episode 60, Act 1, Melissa Friedman, The Pursuit of Synergy, recorded December 2nd, 2022. Screaming about irrevocability Let's burn some bridges, earn some stitches And fight our own way free Cause the rules don't lie but they don't apply To people like you and me Let's start it up now 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 Now they say it's all decided All divided, all laid out and the pushcart man with a three-part plan can't understand what you're shouting about. But when the past they plow, the lives aloud are the only roads you can see. Just remember who walls were built to fall for people like you and me. Let's start it up now. 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 Hey, hey, TA audience. Welcome to Teaching Artistry Podcast. This podcast is researched, recorded, and produced on the unceded lands, water, and air, stewarded by the Canarsie and Muncie Lenape peoples in what is colonially known as Brooklyn, New York. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks for being a part of our global community. You know, every once in a while, I meet someone, IRL, who expresses their gratitude for this indie podcast, and it means the world to me even if I play it cool in the moment. <laughs> You're deeply appreciated. So I think you know what I'm going to say. Invite your peeps, colleagues, and friends to join our community and subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any podcast player. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram and head over to teachingartistry.org to access episodes, guest bios, our video series, merch, and more. So the pod squad took a, took a needed break during February to rest, regroup, focus on community building. And the, the theme is thinking pretty deeply and intentionally about the podcast position in the field, its content, the conversations, and guests. And I'm really excited about what we have in store for you for this season. Um, I think it's going to be good, some, some good stuff, you know? Um, so let's get to our guests. Uh, Melissa Friedman is, how do I put this? Luminescent. Her smile just draws you in. She is incredibly passionate about her work and the connection between social justice and arts education. And in this act, we discuss where she is now where we all are now, uh, her superpowers in teaching uh, being dampened through the pandemic and the work of epic theater and growing up in New Jersey. Here is episode 60, act one, Melissa Friedman, The Pursuit of Synergy. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Courtney. <laughs> Welcome to Teaching Artistry. Uh, this podcast celebrates artists, equity, culture, all sorts of beauty in our world. Um, and I'm really excited. I've already said this. I'm excited. I'm excited for us to have this conversation. I really want to learn more about you, your journey, how you got into this field, what you're currently doing, what your hopes and dreams are, what the challenges are, all the things. I want to hear everything. Um, let's start with how are you and your loved ones? Oh, thank you. Um, first of all, it's really wonderful to, to be on your show. I'm happy to be here. I, uh, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. And my loved ones are, are doing well. It's a strange, strange time that we're in, as you know. And I, I don't know quite how to answer that question at this point. It's really, you know, we're doing technically really, really well. You know, my daughter is a junior in high school and um, 
and I work with my husband. He's a co-founder of Epic. So we share, we've shared the journey of experiencing um, and navigating this crazy terrain um, since the founding of Epic, but also, you know, in particular the last couple of years with the pandemic. Um, that's really great to have that um, shared experience. And yeah, it's, it's, it's all right. We're doing okay. I think that I am happy to be off Zoom. No, I mean, I'm happy to, you know, be on it right now with you, but, um, but I'm, I'm happy that that's not my consistent workplace. So that makes me feel pretty joyful. And I'm also very, very happy to not be wearing a mask. So I'll say it. Um, I am, <laughs> I, I really struggled with the, with the mask wearing in the educational space of reaching students without my face. <laughs> so um, it turns out I really need my face um, to communicate uh, with, with students. And so, so that, that, that was, uh, that, when that shift happened, uh, that was a really big breakthrough in terms of my sense of joy and uh, community. Well, thanks for sharing all of that. I, I often, I start with this question because um, for several reasons. One, I really do want to know, how are you? Um, but two, it's always fascinating to, to see how people answer that question because it feels uh, loaded and nuanced. And I, I, I'm, I'm trying to unpack like wh what, you know, every time I ask, I'm like, oh, why is it so hard? And why do I keep asking it? Because I think it's important <laughs> is why. Um, just to, to respond to the, um, <clears throat> the mask wearing, I feel the same, but I, I want to share something with you. I, um, uh, I, 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 sorry, I adjunct at uh, NYU and the semester um, at the top of the semester, the protocols were, you know, mask mandates, everybody. And then midway through the semester, it was now it's not required, but it, you know, come as you are, come as you need to be. And um, the shit. And so doing that in the middle of a semester was fascinating to watch who was making choices to wear their mask and who wasn't. And in that time frame, I was doing I was sort of treating my class, it's a, it's a teaching artist class, so I was treating them like my residency group where we were doing active work, where I was building on it and using that as a model of how you build a residency. And we were doing performative work that was non-speaking. And, and, and when we started, we were all masked. So the first day of the, of the lesson or the, you know, the series, um, we were all masked. So it was like, how do you how do you make choices where you can communicate beyond your whole face? And that was a lot of interesting conversation. And then by like, I think either the second or the third time, I think we did, we worked in it like three or four times. And by the third or fourth time or the second and third time, I can't remember. But after that first time um, it was optional. And so then you had a mix of people of different people performing together, some with a mask and some without. And it was still like, let's use this as an interesting challenge to create more meaning, meaning making. Um, so anyway, I, I hear what you're saying. I absolutely hear what you're saying in terms of instruction and all of that. I get that. But in terms of um, ensemble building, I think there are, there have been like really interesting mechanisms for, for working with and with around uh, wearing masks. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm, I completely agree. It was very personal for me, as opposed to, mm. I saw the value in, in all of that. I, I worked with, I worked for a long time with a mask on, um, starting in this primarily in the summer of 2021, we had a six week summer intensive live in summer 21, when mm. not a lot of people were going live, mm. um, seeing the students every day, um, with masks on. And I did it and I all through the fall and I just, I've been teaching a long time, like a real, like a long time, like 30 years plus. Yeah. And so I, I, you know, I, I kind of have a, a way of reaching students, you know, and no matter where I am, I, I have a way. And when I had my mask on, it was like my my um, superpowers weren't working. I was like, um, 
it was like the wasn't coming out of my hands, you know, it's like, I couldn't have the, the, what the spidey thing come out, you know? Um, so I just, I wasn't reaching students. Students were walking over me. I couldn't, I couldn't manage the class. I, I felt like I was in year one. I just didn't, I'm being a little dramatic about it. It was probably not as bad as all that. It was also paired with a very trying traumatic time, yeah. right? So, <laughs> but but I, I, I discovered, you know, a lot of, a lot from it, just what the ways in which I engage with students was really do uh, have a lot, does really have a lot to do with connection and, and communicating my curiosity and interest. And a lot of that comes from my face, not just my eyes, but like my whole face. <laughs> so um that was that was a, a discovery. And it was like when I got to take that mask off, I it's like let the sun shine in. Let <laughs> it was like that song was playing. Yeah. No doubt. It really it was really, wonderful. I feel like a lot of people will connect to it with that. Absolutely. And it's interesting too, because I think that a lot of people in my life were very uh much believing in masks in a very, very real serious way. And I took my mask off the day I could, like literally when I could in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And um, I had to make a choice in that moment. I was like, I believe I need to reach these students. And that has to really uh, be the most important thing, has to be the priority the decision that um, that I make here is following what I believe is the most important. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I was struggling because I was trying to use, I, I was gonna say it trumps everything else, but I feel like I can't use that word anymore. So I was struggling with a, a synonym. I was watching a whole bunch of Tiny Desk concerts. Oh. Try, just go with me on this journey. And, yeah. um, and so I started with one that happened during the pandemic. I forget who I watched, but then I went down at this beautiful rabbit hole and they're so good. Ultimately, I ended up at Alicia Keys and that tiny desk happened um, February something 2020. And she was talking. I mean, she could have been talking today the way she was like, we need we need to be having these harder conversations, but we also need to be uplifting and seeing each other. And there's so much hard hardness and strife and da da da, da but, you know, and it was just like, oh, Alicia, <laughs> wow. Um, and, and why I'm bringing, why am I bringing this up? Why am I bringing this up? Oh, because I think one of the things that the, the last, you know, two and a half, three years have been, and, and not that it wasn't before, but definitely now I feel like we have been having our conversations with different kinds of critical conversations with ourselves as individuals in, in individual conversation and collectively collectively whereas I think maybe even you know prior to 2016 we didn't have to do that as 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 fervently as I think we are and and should be doing and probably should have been doing <laughs> you know and so I really appreciate again this you sharing this we haven't even talked about where where you work yet. I love it. This is this is kind of my favorite because it's not about where you work. It really is about who you are, Melissa, and how you think about this work and for you to prioritize, you know, to follow the science like you said, but as soon as it was possible, you knew that your superpower, the way to be able to reach the young people that you're working with, it was going to be stronger faster, quicker, etc., deeper, all those things without the mask. And that I think is a, is a, is a weight, you know, as opposed to being like, I hate this thing and, and resisting it so much or fabricating reasons why not to you, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like that, that's where the criticality comes in where it's like, I, I know I will figure out how to work around this while I need to. And I'm also cognizant of what, um, you know, what gaps there are in terms of my connecting with those I'm working with because I, I know how strong that power of my face is and my engaging and my smiling. I'm sure your smile like draws people, in, you know, all of those things. Um, I just think that's really interesting. <laughs> that's all. Thank you. So why don't you share where, where you work? What, what, what is your role? Uh, and, and what company do you work for? 
I am a co-founder, co-artistic director of Epic Theater Ensemble. We were founded in 2001, September 11th, 2001. What? Yes. And I am uh, I am an actor, director, producer, teaching artist, mentor, and activist. And I am uh, really finding the synergy between those things all the time. And I'm interested in, within my organization, within Epic, of looking at how to build connections and bridges between artistry and education and between social justice and um, and education and the arts. So, you know, we're, we work with and for diverse communities to make bold work. We, our work has expanded during the pandemic from theater pretty much exclusively to theater, film, uh, and any way to tell a story that we can with, with uh, young people are at the heart of what we do. Mm -hmm. So uh, we produce professionally, but always with young people in our heart. And so what are some examples of the producing professionally with the young people at heart? Well, you know, where we're front and center producing right now is with our youth company, Epic Next, which is really, which came about, about the program Epic Next came about halfway through our history in 2012, where we got a, an incredible grant from the Matisse Foundation to start our youth company, uh, where we would place an equal focus on mentorship, artistic training, and uh, and youth development, and leadership training, and and that company, uh, the the touchstone of it, it has been the summer training program that we do with our high school students, and it has transitioned, evolved, moved into touring. So. Professionally, we bring those 30-minute commissioned pieces about educational politics and policies uh, that the students research and create. Uh, we bring those to venues all over the world, uh, primarily right now in New York City, but we have traveled all over the country and to Canada and to um, you know, all, all sorts of venues, um, and those students perform those professional quality productions. Uh, we also, when we do, when we produce off-Broadway, which is challenging in this day and age, so we haven't produced since 2018 off-Broadway, but we started as an off-Broadway theater. Uh, we will do things like rehearse an authentic union rehearsal in uh, one of our partner schools. So throughout the day, we'll have the stage manager there, we'll have the actors there, we will tape off the floor and students will rotate through the classroom and we will be working on whatever we're working on and we'll get the students to direct us. Um, and I know it's really, it's incredible. We've been doing it since 2004. Um, the first time we ever did it was with Hannah and Martin, uh, where I played Hannah Aaron opposite David Strathairn as Martin Heidegger. And we were in the classroom and students were like directing us about how to do this, uh, you know, the scene together and like you move a little bit closer to him here and, and we would take the direction. So when they came to see the show, they would oftentimes see a piece of their direction up on stage and they would, you know, you know, really, really respond to that. So that's an example of, of young people at the heart. We we think about our casting, we think about our selection of plays, we think about everything that we do in terms of our the youth that see the show, although we don't often exclusively perform for young people. That's the, the choices we make are always keeping that in mind. We staff production with um, you know assistant directors from our um, from our cohort of students with, um, you know, front of house staff, et cetera, you know, everything, everything that we do has to do with, with young people. It's like in every area of our, of our work. And do you have a physical space? 
No, we used to be at Theater Row prior to the pandemic. Uh, we had a rehearsal space there and we perf- we were working there, although we've worked all over the city. We've worked at, uh, you know, Pergonis and National Black Theater and Irondale and Theater Row, of course, and, uh, you know, so many venues, it's really hard to keep track. Uh, but we don't have a physical space now. Uh, we have an office space, but... Uh, we don't have, you know, a consistent space in which we can like perform at this point. So we're pretty much a touring company and a, and a renter. <laughs> so, uh, but we have, like I said, we haven't done a, an off-Broadway production since 2018. We did a professional film of Romeo and Juliet uh, uh, during the pandemic, but we, uh, we haven't done the off-Broadway production since, since then. Um, and so you started, you said you started this company in, on September 11, 2001. And between then and now, and then, sorry, you said something about 2004. That was one of your first productions. No, our first production was in the first season and in 2002, in the spring of 2002. And it was a huge hit. Like times loved it. Yeah. Like it was, it was really amazing. And, uh, and our gala was really great. We had an incredible first season. I mean, it was it was wild. Uh, and then our second season, we had all the challenges that you might expect, and 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 it really put us in at risk of closing within a year. Um, and then we managed to to pull through. Two thousand four was just a production, and was a really well regarded production of a play called Hannah and Martin, and that was when we started the process of rehearsing in our, you know, not every day, but at least two or three of our rehearsal days would be spent in a school, um, which was, which is still, it's really fantastic. It's great for us. It's also, I mean, it's really cool for the students, but it's awesome. It's like having the ultimate preview audience because you know, you know this very well that students do not lie in their response. No, they don't, you know. So if the scene is going well, you can feel confident leaving that day. You're like, that's, that scene is good, you know, but uh, if it's not, you know, so go back to rehearsal. Yeah. Yeah. Kids are the most honest critics uh, and they will tell you in in the moment and it's amazing. You're right. Um, Which is why probably I love, uh, it's my favorite thing to do is watch any, any show with kids. Cause I, I know it's my favorite. Yeah, I've seen Hamilton th- three times for student matinees, and it's the best thing in the world. I can't even imagine. Amazing. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so what? My first um, interaction, or or yeah, interaction with Epic was um, No Child. I saw a production of that at, um, with Elijah um, performing all the characters and blew my mind and I remember like seeing you and being like what is this world <laughs> this is amazing and now I use her um her her script as part of the required text for my class the teaching artist um and it's it's a it's a fascinating it's always fascinating to see people you know read read the text and then talk about having seen a, a, some a, I can't I was in great performances or they've seen video a video of it and then um I, I don't know I I know it's been pr- produced in other ways and not and not everybody's doing it as a solo performance so when people are like oh it, it was a solo performance that's crazy it's like yeah they're really strong solo performers like Natasha's son, but how did that project come about? Were you a part of it? Yes, I was. Um, I, I love Nalaja. She's one of my dearest friends. I'm I also at the same time, a hyper fan of her. I just think she's super girl. Absolute, girl. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I've seen No Child so many times and Pike Street, which is her more recent piece. I've traveled everywhere. My husband directs that piece. So I've traveled all over the country to see it, you know, at Woolly Mammoth and Berkeley Rep. And I, every single time she's like in Detroit Public Theater, every single time afterwards I'm weeping. And she's like, really? After, after seeing it 50 times, you're still <laughs> like, yep. Yep, I still am. So, uh, but No Child uh, was, we commissioned her through the New York State Council on the Arts uh, in 
2000, I want to say 2004 or five, the premiere was in 2006 at, at Epic, uh, in the theater row space at Ep uh, Epic producing before it moved to a commercial run. And, uh, we asked her to write this piece. The way I got to know Nalaja was seeing her perform her solo work prior to the official start day of Epic. I went to see her work because one of our co-founders, Shaheen Vaz had recommended that we look at her for the role of Antigone in our touring production of Antigone for our students. And so Ron, my husband Ron and I went to see her and I was completely blown away. And she was our first hire that we, first person we ever hired, you know, outside of our core co-founders, we had seven co-founders. And so she we were like, we're gonna hire her to play Antigone. And, uh, and she did, and I was Ismaini with her. And so we, we played Antigone and Ismaini in uh, those early days in 2001, two, three. And um, we had all sorts of exciting crayons, including Ron Cephas Jones played crayon for a season with us too as well. Anyway, so we commissioned her and she was at the time doing a residency for us at Martin Luther King Jr. High School at Arts and Tech there. And that was partly why it's called Malcolm X High School, although it is an amalgam of many, many schools, as she said many times. Like people want to say, which person was this? And she's like, no, 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 this is, yeah. you know, this character is a lot of characters. Um, but she did have a teacher quit um, at that residency. So there were a couple of things. And there was a, a girl who did that turnaround, you know, thing at that final show. And, you know, so, um, so there were some things notable in that because she was writing it while she was doing that residency. And she did uh, ask me for some thoughts about what play they could be doing. And I did mention our country's good. So I feel pretty excited about it. I'm thrilled to contribute to, um, you know, to a, a winning option there. Um, so it was, it was really exciting and I'm quoted a couple of times in it. So of things I've said to students, you know, and uh, the first time I saw it, it wasn't that different. The very first reading was not that different than what you, what you read or see. It was tweaked a little bit, but it was very similar. And I remember going to the bathroom and just weeping. I couldn't control myself. I was weeping. Um, just, I, I'd never kind of seen the, my insides on, I'm going to start crying now, my insides on stage before, you know, like that just was, it was incredible. Um, ooh, I'm just remembering, I was also pregnant at the time. So I was also pretty emotional <laughs> as it was. I'm an emotional person. I, I can't go too long without bursting into tears about something. Uh, but uh, but uh, yeah, she's, she's amazing. That piece was amazing. And it was incredible to see how committed she was to doing as many pre-show workshops as she possibly could. I would sometimes go in with her and lead a workshop prior to a, a students coming to see the piece so that she could rest her voice a little and she would pop up and just do a warm up. <laughs> but most of the time she would do all of them by herself mm -hmm. um, in the, in the epic run of it. Uh, so, so I, I think I saw it during a preview I felt like it was early days when I saw it I, I I felt very like honored and maybe there was a talk back I because I, 2006 I was I you know fairly still new to this field and um just felt like oh this is like this is exciting and I you know then I was like I've, I've never heard of, of a play that was about our work and to see all the symbolism and you know the parallels between the class and our country's good like there was just such clever cleverness and then the realities of everything inside of that felt authentic super authentic and even you know 15 or so years later I read it and I'm like this all the still rings very very true and in fact it has even more like colors and nuance because I, I understand the field better or I feel like some of these things that are are some of the challenges and the issues, the social issues that are brought up are, you know, more prevalently talked about, at least in my in my sector, for me, from my perspective, meaning. Um, yeah, it's a it's a it's a great piece of theater. It's just a, a wonderful piece of theater. And I do recall also 
I think it was you and she were going on the tour, like the talk when it, after the commercial run had started, like there was something on PBS and I was like, or CBS. There, there was something on, on like a major news channel that I was like, Oh, it's like an expose. And I was like, Oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> yeah, I also did the, the photograph for the playbill. So I got to see the photograph of her on a, like a city bus, my photograph. So I was, I was, Pretty stoked about that, I have to say. Um, but you know, the commercial run, we weren't as involved with. I mean, Ron, my you know, my husband Ron uh, was the sound designer on it, so his work continued on through that. But um, but that commercial run kind of had its own life and its own its own thing, um, and we were just really proud to produce it, and so thrilled that she wanted to do her next piece with us, Pike Pike Street, which we did in a off-Broadway production at the Abrams Art Center. And uh, it was a response to Hurricane Katrina and and her beloved neighborhood where she grew up on the Lower East Side. And in the story of a family that was impacted by a, a different hurricane, a, a fictional one. Uh, but we were able to get some real um, NY, um, New York One uh, newscasters to do some voiceover for us, which is really cool because one of the characters was obsessed with New York One. <laughs> so when we got the the fictional hurricane news, they came in from the actual the actual people. Uh, but yeah, so we're thrilled that that she thinks of us as an artistic home. I love that. Um, and is I mean is that is that a um part of the vision is for artists to feel like Epic is their artistic home? Um, yes, a hundred percent. I mean, Epic's of people use the word family a lot. I mean, one of the the visions of Epic is that we would have this artistic ensemble, this family of artists who were equal parts teaching artists and professional artists that they could find a way to feed their artistry through mentorship and vice versa, because we know that those things have an interplay that when I'm teaching, I learn things about myself as an artist. And when I'm actively pursuing my art, I also am learning about, uh, you know, how to be a better mentor. I'm, I'm learning new skills to, to apply to the, to the mentorship and the teaching. So that was definitely our mission in the beginning, what's evolved and shifted, and that's still true, but what's evolved and shifted and what's really exciting for me now is we, as I mentioned, started this, uh, started our, our youth theater company, Epic Next in 2012. And now the alums from that first year and, and many years that follow are coming back to mentor to teach, to uh, to be on staff. You know, we have three alums on staff right now, um, and we have uh, you know just a, an incredible. We had three out of our um, three out of our five mentors this summer were alums who started with Epic as students in in Bronx in the Bronx and in Harlem um, at our partner schools and that community of alums is really powerful. You know, we're having an, a, a, a party coming up for, for alums and I'm seeing the RSVPs come back and there are our students we worked with 20 years ago, oh. 15 years ago, last year. I am like so excited to see them all in the same space. And I have many times, you know, at events at my birthday party a couple of years. I had a, a big birthday party and I had all of these alums there. It was really cool. So uh, yeah, I think an artistic home and I think also a focus on what it means to be an alum of Epic and come back and give back into the mission, give back to the mission, give back to the community uh, of Epic students that are currently in the thing. I love that. I love it too. I love it. It's the greatest thing in the world, I think. I mean, just watching you like talk about it, you literally light up. Like literally. I mean, I got to see, like I'm thinking about like Xavier, uh, who like when he was a freshman in high school, I got to see him discover theater, uh, particularly Shakespeare at the time. We do this program called Shakespeare Remix and he played, he did four years of it and he won the National Shakespeare Competition 
we were together the entire thing. And then he went on to Muhlenberg and then he just graduated from NYU grad acting. And now he's leading our citywide remix. He's a mentor for the last three years with Epic Next. And I learned from him. He just did a lesson last week when I was like, can you tell me what you did again? What was that? Why did you do that? You know, I was like, I'm training other people in his pedagogy. You know, it's really, his name is Xavier. Xavier uh, Pacheco, a wonderful, wonderful alum of Epic and fabulous actor um, and uh, teaching artist. And he's just one of, he's one of many, many, many alums who come back and work with us. And, and, and alums, there are also many alums who choose another path or getting, I mean, one of our alums is getting her master's in global health right now, or, you know, just different, different pathways, certainly not, and you know this well, it's certainly not our goal to ask the students to become actors or playwrights, but, you know, there are people that we meet along the way who discover their path and learn who they are meant to be, yeah. you know, and it's really to witness that and to help support them in that process is, is a real gift. So we do share a commonality where we were, we were, both our organizations were Matisse um, grantees or part of the Matisse network around looking at arts impact and building, um, building extension or new programming that um, still, you know, was, it was aligned with like aspirational goals of ours. And that, that, that was, that's what Epic Next is. Was that the program? And so, you know, the, that funding, it lasts for, it's a it's a significant amount of funding. I mean, don't get me wrong, like Matisse is amazing, um, but they don't, you know, they don't fund forever. <laughs> so I'm just curious, like how, how it, so often in the nonprofit world, you know, you get funding for a term of time and then it's a struggle to keep that program running at the, at least maybe at that scale or whatnot. So I'm just curious, like what, um, since it's continuing, which I love, and it's a, such a strong program, what are some strategies that you have been able to um, implement past that particular, I don't know how long your funding structure was for, but like but past that, like very, very um, generous funding model. We, the program was such a tremendous success and it moved to such the heart of what we do mm. that, I mean, it was, we, we made a thesis. We're like, what if we really invest in and in these young people in a way that is significant? We, we move the ratio of like four to one in terms of mentorship and, and really, um, and really dedicate ourselves to college prep and making sure that those students not only are trained over the summer, but over the year, we give them all these opportunities and ways to take class and see theater. And uh, and then also do all of this college prep work and take them to see colleges and help them with their process of applying and, and, and see them through that. Um, what would happen? Would they come back and be able to really do what we say, which is become the future, the next generation of, of leaders. And I think the answer is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. And so, you know, when foundations start seeing that, they're like, Ooh, I, I think this is really awesome. And so we've gotten some Matisse has, has con continued, continued their funding with us in, in a different way, in a different capacity, but yeah. um, Matisse continued to be generous with us, but we also were, were supported by Heckscher and Pinkerton and other, other foundations to make sure that we were able to robustly continue and continue dreaming and not scaling back and pulling back. So this summer we served 30 students in our first year program and were able to pay all of them. Nice to do it. And then we had another 10 in our second year kind of touring company. Uh, but we also are, are able to link up to SYEP, the Summer Youth Employment Program. So some of our students are paid directly through that program. Um, but uh, some of them, many of them are paid through us and we were getting fine, uh, foundation support. Other programs we've had, we have not had that same kind of level of, of success replacing the funding. I'm not a 
you know, I find it really stressful to be like, ask those questions about, <laughs> to be real, uh, how are you going to be sustainable? And I go like, I don't know, every year we have a new group of students. <laughs> we always need funding. I, there's no like, there's no not strategy in which we, yeah. we stop what paying our mentors or, you know, ask for volunteers or something, you know, but, uh, but in this particular case, I think it was so, it so met our high expectations mm. and it kind of exceeded them. I would say that it, it took notice and then our alums and our, even our current students are able to speak about their growth and the ways in which they have changed their expectations of themselves so eloquently uh, that they are that that funding has has come in for that program. Other programs again more challenging to raise money for, <laughs> yeah. and certainly professional production. Woo! Um, but uh, but uh, but for for Epic Next that has had um, a lot of success. So that's that's a wonderful thing. But yeah. who knows what next year will bring. So I want anyone who's funding us, if they listen to this, please continue. Um, yes. Happy to support in any way. Um, yeah, no, I mean, the, the Matisse Foundation definitely has some re, uh, strong, uh, uh, well, strong, you know, funding support, but also just like, I thought I think that they were very smart about how they went about uh, you know encouraging those of us who were considered um to think in deeper ways than maybe we were um I know I can say that I'll speak for myself that that's that that's ultimately what for us we got um funded to to launch a, a specific residency program that we called Spark um, which also included a longitudinal study, um, which we published during the pandemic, the, the results of, and are still, you know, very much <clears throat> having learned from that work and applying it to multiple facets of our programming. Um, and the program was massive. And um, so much of that learning has been, rather than making it a specialized program, has been poured into the entire residency program and has beget new ideas for content-based residencies that um, um, that hold a lot of the same tenets of what we were where we're trying to accomplish in in this longer term residency um, and you know I, I think what what's been interesting from my perspective and maybe you have a similar perspective is that you know our identity as an institution has always been um, like the mission has always been very clear. Um, and, and in the time since being funded and doing that work, and now it's been 10, 10 or so years, um, how we see ourselves, not how others see us, but how we see ourselves has absolutely expanded. Um, and it's mul like multiplicitous and, um, you know, just like much more, I feel like we have a lot, we've always had a lot of heart and I feel like that heart has just gotten bigger as a result of some of this work that we've been doing. Um, so I really, I, you know, that, that was a little commercial, I guess, but, <laughs> but just to say like, it's, it's really great when you have phil philanthropists who are asking you to, they're asking big, hard questions and getting you to also ask yourselves, and push yourselves. And I feel like we've had quite a few funders in the last, in that last, in this last decade, those last 10 years who have asked like really interesting questions that you're like, what is that even a thing? Can we do, could somebody do that? We can do that. Could we do that? <laughs> Why don't we do that? We should do that. Let's do it. How do we do it? Let's go. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's been, that's been a big learning curve for that experience was a big, like, me like stepping into a very clear leadership position moment, I would say being a part of, of, of the Matisse cohort and launching that work and doing that. I really, it really pushed me and us uh, to go deeper, think deeper, you know, um, 
be open to other people looking at our work. You know, the idea of inviting researchers to look and, you know, as somebody who has never really done research before, it was, I like you, you can listen to our conversation with Denny Palmer Wolf, who is our principal researcher and, and to listen to somebody who is not doing the work, but has a way of, of, you know, sh- like, 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 I don't know, like, um, almost like Star Trek where it's like, uh, what's this, the, when the, you know, beam me up, like all of a sudden you're like beamed to another world. And it's like, this is your world. This is what's happening in your world. What? <laughs> That's amazing. How did I not know this was happening? I'm glad we were doing some research because now I'm seeing, now I can see it and I can start programming with that in mind. I can start thinking and designing and thinking about how to support the teaching artists because now I have this new perspective and understanding of the work that I'm just doing, <laughs> you know? Um, so it's been, it's been, yeah, very, very, um, oh, I don't, I don't know if I have a great word right now, but just, I I keep seeing the word expansive, but that's not even it. It's transformational, like, maybe. Transformational. That's good. Yes. Yeah. Very transformational. Um, yeah. Uh, and ha- and and so now I want to I want to take us back. I want to take us back to to your to to your early years. Where where did you grow up? Um, what kind of kid were you and how did you, what did you do um, in terms of arts engagement? Like how were you involved in the arts? I grew up in suburban Jersey in Westfield, New Jersey. And uh, in a place where I knew pretty early wasn't my place. You know, I was like, this is not my place. Uh, I was a really shy kid I remember very vividly in like second or third grade asking to read a play that we were supposed to read out loud in class and someone going she speaks you know like <laughs> I was just really in my little bubble um and I um came to the arts first through music and dance you know I took ballet and I was in chorus in school. I loved going to see musicals. I'm from Jersey. So my parents would bring me into the city and we, I saw, you know, Annie and that thing. So, uh, and uh, so I would, I would do that. I I would take the classes. And I remember Mrs. Northover was my chorus teacher and she asked all of her students to suggest a song that they wanted to have sung in chorus and so I suggested like a song from they're playing our song or something you know something from a program and then um everybody else did like John Cougar Mellencamp or whatever they were you know whatever that was listening to at the time and I remember the students going through the answers and like who put they're playing our song and I was like Mm, I like like musical theater um and uh, so that didn't win me any friends I didn't really have friends in in when I was a kid I was so I just listened to music and I I just didn't ever get that sense that I belonged in that place you know and then I went to middle school and I started doing the musicals and I started making friends and uh and then it wasn't really until high school that I started doing theater and I really discovered like a play, what what it meant to like see a play or do a play. And I, I think it was a really exciting way for me to connect what was also my burgeoning activism. I was really involved in the um, anti-apartheid movement and in AIDS activism, really young. I mean, I, I grew up in the 80s, so I, I saw these things happening and I, um, I was, I, I discovered Athel Fugard and um, The Normal Heart. And I was like, oh, theater can mm-hmm. illuminate and push us, challenge us and move us and change us. And I can be like a 
right at the front lines of that as an actor. I could be just the person delivering that, you know, <laughs> that push, that that call to empathy as an actor. And I loved it. So what was felt kind of like an exercise in coming out of my shell, <laughs> which is just like theater for me was like acting. It was just like, oh, I'm going to be less shy through acting became a call to action. And it became a way to engage those two parts of myself. And so my theater teacher in high school introduced us to the uh, as is I did as is and the normal heart in high school oh, I don't know what as is it as is is a play um about the AIDS ep epidemic uh and as is normal heart um and uh the normal heart and uh and then um and then I just saw uh Master Harold and the Boys on PBS and then I asked my parents for my 16th birthday to take me into the city and see the road to Mecca, which is also by Afa Fugard. Um, and uh, that was like my, that was what I wanted. And uh, so. Um, Wait, can I, can I pause you for a second? Um, Master Harold and the boys. That was with Matthew Broderick, right? Yeah. And Danny Glover. And Danny Glover. Yeah. Yeah. I remember watching that. Yeah. And being like, I, I wasn't, I, it took me a minute to get into like understanding politics, but, but like, yeah, the news and current events were definitely like in my, like in my world, in my family, you know, home, but <clears throat> me understanding the world took a little bit longer. <laughs> I was uh, protesting in Washington, DC. I was like writing letters every day. And then I, I didn't, I thought that was, those were two separate things like I was doing a play and then I was writing letters and going to marches and then that that happened and I was like oh I can I can combine those things you know is that amazing like when you have that like revelation it's so good and so I also was I grew up in a town that was super conservative and very much like if you've seen a John Hughes movie one of my relatives passed away and we were looking through pictures and he had all these pictures of me with my grandmother, my mom, and I must've been like 14 or 15. I swear to you, I'm wearing the same Molly Ringwall hat and 16 candles. I have like under, eye, you know, a liner. I, it's just it's like, I'm channeling, you know, somebody who's not even in my, of my world, <laughs> but somehow that's what, that's what was connecting for me, I guess. I don't know. It was just really funny to see myself in this picture. Uh, anyway, so I, I, I'm hearing and visualizing everything what you're saying right now. It was really funny. I just, I, you know, my high school experience was very much about feeling like an outsider and feeling like I didn't fit into this world. And I, wanted to find a community of artists, activists. And I wanted, and I, so I went to Oberlin college. <laughs> I found that definitely found it there. It was uh, a really wonderful space for me. I found a lot of lifelong friends and, and I married to one of them. And um, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it was a really, it was really exciting to be in a space where everybody around me was looking at how to connect the arts and, and activism. And I felt like I, a sense of belonging, you know, which was not something I felt in, in school. I had, I mean, I had a great group of friends and in, in school ultimately, but uh, I didn't, I grew up in the eighties in the suburbs and I, I really reject that way of thinking the, the, where success equals money and uh brand and greed is good and all that nonsense so i rejected and i uh that one cool in that in that space and i really wanted to be in a place where what was beautiful was art making and curiosity how did you know that that wasn't that that you were rejecting that well i was rejected so that was partly it. Mm. So I was in the hallway and people would shout commie dyke at me, you know, and, uh, and this is why, and I would go, thank you, you know, and, uh, 
And it was because I was in, I think I was in the young leftist club or something like that uh, for like a day or two. Uh, Cause I was like, that sounds like a cool name. And so I went over, but um, I didn't really do much there, but um, uh, oh yeah. You know, I worked in a soup kitchen. That was, that was what I did there. You know, I, I would go to Newark and I would, that's me as the young leftist working at a soup kitchen. And then um, I was in a, a women's history club or something like that. And so hence being called the dyke. And uh, uh, I was also an LGBTQ activist um, and ally. And so I was name called and I wasn't, I didn't feel accepted by that community. So I in turn rejected them, you know? Uh, so I think some people get rejected and they're like, have a sense of longing mm. for the people who've rejected them, right? And I did not have a sense of longing. I saw them very much as homogeneous. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They were all the same and they wore the same clothes and they tried to think the same thoughts. And I was, I mean, I was looking back at, you know, an, an old college essay of mine, because I do a lot of coaching for uh, college essay writing for my students. And I was like, what did I write? And I wrote all about this kind of like wanting a heterogeneous, I was calling it, trying to use fancy words, you know, heterogeneous world where there were lots of different kinds of opinions and not this monolithic yeah. thought that everyone shared and and yes, yes to each other. Um, I wanted to be in a space where you never knew what people were going to say and, and you wanted to hear different opinions from different people. And the suburbs to me has just a, that sense of replication and derivativeness that, especially in the 1980s, that was made me feel rejected, but also bored the bored me like to no end. Like I thought it was incredibly it's so interesting. I, I I love hearing you talk because I'm I'm reflecting on my own experience. And I've definitely talked a lot about it here, but I I in in listening to you many thoughts are coming up and the first one is the, the the like why why is that why you know why in the suburbs does that conformity take place and so i've started thinking about architecture and how there's all those prefab that's the first place i go is you know prefab homes but really like the suburbs were created uh you know when it was white flight right and, um, you know, you can curate your own experience, the experience that you want. So you don't actually have to deal with the world <laughs> as it is versus the world that you create and it's exclusionary. Um, and yet, you know, one of the things that I, I've talked about a lot here is that like, even though you conform, like the, you create a world of conformity and assimilation, like people are miserable. The, the crazy and the one-upping each other, all that stuff, like you said, like the greed is good and all. The, it's not actually, it's, I find it very fascinating because it's not, it, how do I say this in a way that makes sense? I don't know if it's the people, it's the game. It's super, it's white supremacy, which is so freaking smart. But like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, because when I would talk to my friends versus watching their parents, like the parents would play that game and I would see right through it because my friends were like, so these are the 5,000 things that are shit in my life. And yet, you know, I still have to do this and I have to do that and I have to, and I hate it, but yet I do it because what else am I going to do? As opposed to being like, no, <laughs> you know? And, um, listen, it comes up all the time where like, this is the, this is the truth. This is, mm -hmm. I, when working in New York city, public schools, under resourced schools for 20 six years, I think, uh, since I came to New York in 96. And people are, will say to me, it's so good what you do that you've chosen to work in those spaces. And I am like, I, that is the only place I want to work. Mm -hmm. I don't want to work and I've had a couple of times when I've worked in like a private school setting or, a, um, a, a suburban, primarily white uh, public high school. And I 
was miserable. I found it to be stifling. And I mean, it was a little bit reminiscent, of course, of where I went to high school. So um, I, I don't like it. You know, have you, you know, the musical Bring It On? I, I really loved the way in which they depicted the suburban, the shift from the suburban to the city high school. Cause it's so often like suburban high school is really nice. And then the inner city school is dangerous, you know, but instead it was like, it was the, the suburban school is sort of terrifying and like mean, mm-hmm. just mean, unkind and fiercely competitive and toxic. And then they would go into school and there was just like all of these gender expressions and, and vi- vibrance and, and, and affection and, and acceptance. And, and I was like, that's a very uh, much, not always what you experience in the schools that I work with, but it's certainly in comparison to where I grew up so much more, um, I felt like where I grew up was very withholding. I go into schools and they're like, oh, you uh, they will compliment me immediately. I feel I feel loved very quickly. Like I just there's a lot of verbal expression of, you know, lots of compliments run, running around, you know, just. Yeah, you're reminding me of um, I recently I went to a conference um, and one of the breakout sessions was about um, philanthropy um, and thinking about, um, decolonizing philanthropy and then like looking at social, like funding social justice programs or programs around social justice. And, um, the panel, it was a lovely, a lovely group of panelists. And one of the two of, I think two of the, the panelists were business, uh, like corp, like corporate businessmen, um, very specifically. And this one um, person was talking about, how you know how they got compelled to want to to want to fund at large levels and they talked about this like this particular community in texas that was poor or low income and but the way he was talking about it was like you know they have no resources all the all the things that you know you know really here and then another panelist responded and was like you know i i want to be careful about how we're talking about you know what could be really easy to talk about the um, the deficit, as opposed to yes. now understanding that you know I I'm I I'm pretty positive that if you were to show up at, at any one of those families' doors, they would make sure you had a hot meal, that you had something to do. They are the most generous, even when they have little. And so th- something that you said made me think of that. If you saw me like look up, that was what I was doing. Was like remembering exactly how I I saw that because that generosity of spirit, that generosity of I will give you as much as I can of my own resources because that's what we do and that's how we create community. Um, I will give you the shirt off my back, you know, like that. Those things are real, and I agree with you. When I walk into, uh, you know, a New York City school, I feel that you can feel the love you can feel and and that's you know that's not to say anything about you know all the the definite you know pressures and all of those things are are concurrently happening but in most schools you feel a sense of community you feel a sense of care for the young people a sense of protection for the young people you know even through any sort of discipline you can feel you know you just feel and and you know, in my, you know, the thing that I, uh, you know, I think because I didn't go to school in this system, when I first started going uh, teaching in the system, I was like, oh, look, there's so much parity, meaning the young people are being taught by people who actually look like them, not in all the spaces, but a lot of them. And that is something that's really important too, that we're being, you know, able to see models of people who look like me, in leadership and you know, leadership roles. And that's something to be considering, you know, how do you emulate that same thing with, when it comes to your teaching artist staff, right? Like how do we make sure that they're seeing artists of color and artists who, and artists who collaborate with each other or collaborate with their teacher and adults who are collaborating, like how that is important too. Um, and I, I know I didn't get any of that when I was, <laughs> not to that degree that I think we do it, or that I'm conscious of now, obviously, but, um, 
yeah. yeah. I, I, but there, we had so many resources. Like we had a lot going on. We were quote unquote an arts rich school, but did I feel like it felt competitive? It felt all sorts of things. And I figured out where I could like work in and, and feel good about what I was doing. But I, I, like you said something about <laughs> when somebody called you that name, I was like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I remember that. That oof. I mean, no, nobody called me all the, that specific name, but it's just more like there, you know, finding, finding something to like push, push at something that you are self-conscious about or you, or I'm just going to say negative things until I figure out what can make hurt you. Like what? Why? That's so much energy. (laughs) That's so much energy. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I think that asset minded approach of thinking, you know, not like what are these students and these schools missing while concurrently, as you were saying, acknowledging the fact that, you know, this is an extremely segregated school system. And when I say under-resourced, I mean that not as a defining thing, but they are literally, the schools we serve, as you know, are, they do not have the same kind of arts allocation. They don't have the books. They don't have, they're like the building. Their budgets are based off of neighborhood income levels. Exactly. We did some work in Scotland with the National Theater of Scotland. We did a, a in the International Youth Theater Exchange and our students, this is the third year of Epic Next, we traveled with them to perform a piece called 10467, which is the zip code of uh, this where, where one of our schools in the Bronx is yeah. Yeah, about yeah. educational inequity, this piece, mm-hmm. and performed it in Scotland. And the students were primarily from Scotland, though there were people from a couple different countries like New Zealand and other, a few other countries there as well. They were so confused. They're like, wait, you don't get an equal allotment for every school? And we're like, no. They're like, all of our schools are the same here. They get the same budget. What? They were so confused. Like, that's wrong. Isn't that wrong? Like, yeah, that's what this play is about. Yeah, it's like the impact on these students, you know? Um, But yeah, so the the resources and all of these things, this is one of the, the big causes of our work now and is really to put a spotlight on that inequity and to uh, also give resources to those schools that, I mean, the the kind of attention and mentorship and work that we give to the schools that we work with, I think, in our effort to leveling the playing field to these extraordinary students is, is part of that work. So, so yeah. <laughs> It's it's intense. It's intense. I I'm I'm happy to be in the places I am, and I think I I take offense sometimes when when people I know will say to me, "You're you're so like you're such a saint, or you're so good for for working there." And I'm like, mm, "That's not that's not how I see it." Um, <laughs> but it plays into the other you know those tropes. Thank you for listening to episode 60, act one of Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body, Melissa Friedman, The Pursuit of Synergy. Join us next time for act two. This podcast is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the director of creative content. John Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org and head to the pod shop at the top of the page for merch. Find us on Instagram at Teaching Artistry Podcast. And now on YouTube, check out the Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body channel and watch We Can't Go Back. Like our page on Facebook, listen to us on SoundCloud and Spotify, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now.